Welcome everybody to the Career Jungle podcast, where we talk about work, education, and everything in between. I'm here today with Ben, as usual, coming Hello. to us from Miami. New That's location. not as usual. At ben, as usual, but you're coming to us from a new location. And we have a special guest here today, Nate Kennan. Coming to us from New Jersey. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about, he went into a little bit of a zigzag career path and really interesting, different field than we've spoken about till now. He's worked in private equity. No, sorry. Wealth management, asset, I believe. Asset, asset management. Now we'll learn about all the differences, asset management and business development. And as usual, we'll start off with just like, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career path, what you were thinking as an 18 year old and what, or whenever you started your career and what was your like steps to get to different careers and what did you need to get there? That's right. Absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, Shua, Ben, both of you, thanks for having me here. Yeah. I will say that my career has followed a relatively unconventional path, although it's not as though it's been some success story. It just followed an unconventional path. So I, I did my undergraduate degree, um, in political science in Tel Aviv, Israel, and then wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly, but I knew that it wasn't necessarily going to be in political science. So I did a master's in comparative political economy, which is essentially the intersection between politics and government banking or central banking, which gave me a good understanding of global markets, the way that politics impact them, and obviously finance and public markets, stock markets bond markets, everything that's exchanged for, you know, in terms of investments. That led me to doing interviews for a number of more technical roles that I wasn't either qualified for or particularly excited about. And that led me finally to taking a sales job, um, not pure sales as we, we can discuss, but it's, it's more than just calling people and it's not a boiler room like in the Wolf of Wall Street, but it certainly is not underwriting securities and investment bank either. Asset management, that's what I started with. And sales of asset management uh, products is essentially, I wasn't an advisor consultant, which meant that I was selling mutual funds and ETFs and separately managed accounts or institutional accounts for an asset manager. In this case, uh, the company's name is Lord Abbott, but they compete with companies like Fidelity, BlackRock, Franklin Templeton, names that you guys might be more familiar with yeah, and that listeners might be more familiar with. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting. So just for our audience, what is asset management as a whole? What For people who don't know what BlackRock or, or some of these other yeah, big firms are, what, is, what does that mean to someone who's like just graduated high school, knows maybe a little bit about the stock market, some meme stocks, but isn't, doesn't really know that much about the field in general. And what does that entail like, like day to day? And then- right. What type of personalities would you say like best fit that type of role? Sure. So as in order to describe asset management, I'll just say what it isn't first, because I think there's probably, like you said, there are definitely misconceptions. So let's, what it isn't, isn't it's not private equity and it's not hedge funds. It is investing though. It's managing investments, all three head, private equity, hedge funds, and asset management all manage investments. The difference is which investments and how they do it and for whom. Um, Hedge funds are fancy versions of asset management firms that know how to market themselves well as hedge funds and also charged two and 20. So they charge a 2% fee every year on the assets that they're managing and 20% of the gains, which actually erodes a lot of the gains for investors and 
Typically, although they market themselves as exotic performers who will do well and be, keep you positive every year, no matter whether the market is up or down, in reality, hedge funds actually have underperformed the market and their peers in the asset management industry in the last decade, but have outperformed in certain times, such as last year for the entire decade of, I think, 1996 to 2006, which included the dot-com bubble. So it's a good time to outperform, but at the same time, their fee structure isn't for everyone. Needless to say that they don't accept anyone's investment. They typically, there's minimum investments going to be higher than at least a million. So hedge funds is one thing. There, It's a, a very sexy field, but in reality, it's just another arm of assets. And then private equity really isn't very relevant, although it has a cool name and a cool reputation. But private equity is actually literally investing in companies before they go public. And obviously there's a lot of research involved and that's really an investment banking thing. That's not asset management at all. Hedge funds and private equity work together, but then again, so do. Asset managers are the broadest sort of category. What they are is basically companies that manage investments for everyday investors or institutional, whether it's in the form of mutual funds, which can be actively managed mutual funds, picking individual stocks or bonds, uh, or it can also be ETFs, which typically are passive. They're index funds. They just buy the S&P index or they might buy uh, the NASDAQ 100 index, et cetera. I think you guys understand ETFs. Most people do. There's a Bitcoin ETF out there as of today. This is a pretty common thing and companies tend to be successful by gathering a large amount of assets. And the people who sell these ETFs or these mutual funds are people like me. The difference is that we're selling them to financial advisors or to institutions who make the choices for their clients. So actually most of people listening here would not have really interact with an asset manager directly. Rather, they make their own choices in their own brokerage account. They buy an ETF, they buy a stock. Obviously, asset managers don't sell them stocks. Uh, brokerages do that. So basically, most people, it's, it's, it's a B2B position that we're talking about. The sales role is I speak with financial advisors who then manage assets for wealthy individuals, typically. They make the choices for them. Most people our age don't have a financial advisor and even if they did, it's unlikely that I'm gonna be reaching out to your financial advisor. I'll probably be reaching out to your parents your wealthy parents' financial advisor, to be honest. And that's it all, you, I'm sorry, I, I guess that was a long-winded way of describing the industry, but the day-to-day the -day role is really calling advisors, running comparisons between our mutual funds and other companies' mutual funds or ETFs, giving them an idea of how we'll manage it, discussing the strategy, discussing our view on the markets, and everything in between. Client management, territory management, everything in between. Really. And the last question you asked was what kind of a person succeeds in this role and has fun doing it. And I would say that there isn't particularly one individual type, since I consider myself to be relatively unique and I don't fit into a box. That being said, you have to be social. You have to be interested in the markets. You have to be either persuasive or truly believe in what it is that you're um, selling. You do have to be smart, but that isn't the only thing. Admittedly, you could, you could probably be really passionate and, and cool and maybe not the smartest person and at least get somewhere in finance sales, but you do have to be smart enough to pass the license tests, which come at the very beginning and are critical to, you can't sell anything if you don't pass your series seven and your series 63 licenses. You can't, you don't earn any commission until you do that. So that's the beginning. And so what, what are the licenses? Is this anytime you sell any sort of financial vehicle, you need to take these licenses? Yeah. You, in order to speak with a client, basically you have to have these licenses. Series seven is the critical one. That's to discuss investments. And then there are other ones like the series 63 and series 65. These are for getting an individual, most states require these licenses and in order to be able to sell multiple states and all, there are sorts of extra things you need to do. And series 65 typically is another requirement. So I have those and wouldn't be able to work a day without them. And it's a very regulated industry. 
So these licenses are not just, you don't just get them so you can sell, you also get them so you can get sued afterwards because you acknowledge you understand these things. Once you have the seven and the 66, you're a representative of your company and you cannot lie about anything from the yield of a, of a mutual fund that's putting out from the returns of the makeup of the fund. Everything has to be accurate. Everything has to have compliance approved uh, language and terminology. And it's a very different field from what it was going back again to the Wolf of Wall Street and, and the movie Wall Street and all those things from back in the day. All those disasters led to a much more regulated industry. Every single phone call is in recorded line. You can't give performance that's incorrect to the day. Literally on the phone, you must give performance that is up to date to today. You can't say uh, this fund is up 3% this year if yesterday it lost 4% and now it's down. Just as an example, you could be sued for that. So that's why the licenses are critical. That's why the job can be, it, certainly you have to be precise in the way you speak. That's okay. critical. Sounds like a lot of pressure. Um, every job, I think, has pressure involved in it, and the, the pressure here is getting worried about your boss seeing an email you sent that was wrong or you're sending out a, or saying something wrong on the phone. But at the same time, there's less intellectual pressure at times. Okay. Sometimes you can have the same conversation 10 times in a day. So I'm not going to say that's good or bad, it's, but it's true. You have to be very knowledgeable about the markets, and there is one difference I'll say between this, and I know we're going to talk about uh, other types of sales in other industries later, I will say that one difference between being in finance and doing sales and being in technology or, or other areas, high tech, the one difference is that the markets are open every single day from 9.30 till 4 p.m. And there is news throughout the day. There's also news, but you can't miss, I'm going on vacation in a couple of days. On vacation, I will still leave news about the markets every single day. And on top of that, when I get back, I will have a lot of catch up work to do. Because you, you have to know what's going on in the markets, and the markets literally fluctuate throughout the day. There are many markets, there are many asset classes, and there are many products that you have, or funds that you have to discuss in, in my industry. Uh, so you have to know which stock is up, which stock is down. Today, tomorrow, uh, today and yesterday, I should say, and then you know tomorrow it will change again. So you need to read a lot of Bloomberg. A lot of Bloomberg, a lot of the <laughs> subscriptions. First day there, uh, they always tell you get a either a Wall Street Journal subscription or a Bloomberg subscription. Uh, you have to get a Barron's subscription. That's the uh, the weekly for the uh, the man, man, uh, asset management industry. All sorts of subscriptions, basically. Yes. All right. So you brought up sales, and I have two questions, and I think you can give it to us at once because my question. I know. I guess we should say that I do know Nate for what I don't know, like eleven years at this point, which is insane. Very close friend of mine, one of my dearest friends, and I never thought about. It, but what did you like? How did you get into sales? Did you think you were going to get into sales? And how does it really merge with the story we have now? Yeah, I did not know I was going to, I, I didn't know I was going into sales even when I came to that interview. This is maybe isn't a great example for everyone, but I was looking up on LinkedIn consultant roles because I was considering just not even as my main push for my career search, but I was, when I graduated and when I finished my master's, I was looking up consultant roles because I thought it might be relevant. And I saw a role called advisor consultant at Lord Abbott in Jersey, right across from the World Trade Center. And I went to the interview and only realized it was a sales job and only realized that it wasn't an asset management firm, that it wasn't a, consult, a management consultant firm, but rather an asset management firm in the second round of that day. So I went through <laughs> one whole round, not even knowing I was interviewing for a sales job. That's partially a beginner's mistake, but I guess the main point is it was purely by accident and I'm very happy it happened. But uh, yeah, these things happen. That being said, most of the other people who were interviewing for those roles did know, and I'm pretty sure the job description was clear enough on that. So I'm, I'm happy <laughs> that it happened. Got it. 
Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I worked in a, in a similar environment. I worked at an asset management firm as a trader for a little bit, and I got to witness a little bit of this world. And so just to organize everything. So I, a consultancy is they're going to companies and giving them advice essentially on how to run their business and how to improve their business. And then you have these hedge funds that are more like they're all competing to get these like amazing returns. So they're like doing these big moves on like these meme stocks. And that was the big GameStop. Yeah. They were involved in that. And then all these asset management firms are doing this, like not boring, but essentially trying to cater to regular people who don't want any excitement and they just want good, consistent returns without too much volatility. I, I don't know if you'll agree with that description. Yeah, it depends on the, on the my, my firm. Right. Is, my firm loves high growth and uh, would be oh, considered okay. <laughs> but other firms are not. Okay. Yeah. So I guess it really depends, but at, at the firm I worked at, they were very like, we want the mix with the least volatility and the most return. Um, so tell me a little bit about what would you recommend anyone who's thinking about going into this field, into asset management? What are some of the like mistakes you would say that commonly should be avoided? And uh, what are some like maybe unrealistic expectations and what should be your expectations going into this? Yeah, the, the good, I'll start with the good news. The good news is that the asset management industry, I believe, is one of the best places to work out of all the industries. It's a hidden gem. Most people don't know about it when they're in college. Most don't know afterwards for sure. And it's a hidden gem that is its own community of people. It's not the largest industry in finance within the subsector of finance. It's not the largest, but it certainly is, I think, one of the better paying for the amount of work you do and your work life balance. I can say that no company that I've ever interviewed for or the end of the two ones I've worked for in asset management, work life balance is always important and it's actually a given. Uh, unless you're a higher up, you really don't take your and look at it on a Saturday or Sunday. You don't. Uh, clients don't email you on Saturdays or Sundays, so you don't have to work with them on Saturdays or Sundays. That's uh, surprising. Not... The image I have in my head, if it's like a finance guy, is that he's on right. 24-7. So this, this is yeah, shocking. Because, yeah, no, investment bankers are. And that's partially because of their deadlines and partially they have, de they have self-imposed deadlines that wreak havoc with their younger, with their uh, analysts and associates at the, at the younger levels. Uh, the lower levels. Self-imposed deadlines meant to impress their clients and get the work done. Obviously, there are deadlines because if they're trying to take a company public, they have to do the work as quickly as possible with the best marketing conditions, etc. Private equity, same exact idea. Hedge funds, private equity, anyone who's doing private investments is going to want to do that because information is, is literally the key to success. And once you have information, you need to act on it quickly. With the public markets, all the information is technically, it better be actually out there. So every stock that we're investing in, I'm talking about the investment side, which I'm not even on. For them, even the market still does close at a certain hour, and the, the pressure for traders is over at that point. No doubt about it. You can't trade apart from over the counter. You can't do trading after market. And then, in addition to that, on the sales side, the market closes, but also our clients who are advisors go home. So it's good work-life balance, and people treat each other well. It's simply not the same as other areas of finance. But the drawback, or not the drawback, I'd say the thing you need to be aware of going into it is that. First of all, once you're in there, it's tough to market yourself out of there. Clearly, you know, it's a smaller industry and it's funny. If, if considering the amount of companies in asset management is, I don't actually know, but of the big ones, maybe two to 300 in America, of the smaller ones, maybe a thousand or 2000. Of course, anyone who works in asset management sales can also transition to being a financial advisor if they want. And of them, there are literally 
hundreds of thousands. There's that option, but that means leaving your industry. But your Series 7 license works for being a financial advisor as well. So that's the good news, I guess. I actually didn't even think about that because I haven't considered that. But many people do start their own practices or join practices or maybe even work with the clients and then eventually like them so much that they join their firm or they move up in this industry. So there's room for, for moving around, but at the same time, it's by no means the tech industry or even manufacturing, whatever it is that people can move around all around the country and know that they're going to have a job. It's not the case in asset management. If you move to Kansas City, there are about three firms probably that have roles for me. So it's, there are limitations. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting that it's like, uh, it's like a siloed area. Like people think of finance and they group it together. What Ben was saying. And when we speak to people, they think of finance, oh, you work in finance and it's all the same, but there are like more intense jobs. There are, are less, there's more of sales. Like you said, I'm sure there's more like research oriented jobs and yeah, it's interesting that you can't even, there's not that much movement even within the finance field. Like not everything is transferable and there's a lot of specializations. Right. So tell me, you did move to a different area, a different field. How did that happen? And why did you think of doing that at some point? Sure. Yeah. So this is certainly very personal to me and it doesn't apply to most people, but I'll just, I'll, I'll say where I was in my career when it happened to give you an idea. I've been at, at Lord Abbott, my first asset management firm for about two years. I decided not to take the CFA test. That's an, an important, the CFA certification isn't something that you would do to prove you're not only good at math, but I can understand investment concepts. And that's one way to move up in asset management, as well as in finance and investment banking in all those fields. I decided to not do that. And I decided I might instead want to stay fully on the sales side and do something internationally. But it became clear to me that the licenses abroad and in Europe, for example, are just as difficult to get. And there's a language barrier involved and visa sponsorship and so forth. And so I decided to look at, at a, an industry where I could move anywhere. This works well with what I said before. And I looked at tech, I realized, or I thought to myself in any case, that sales is sales. And although it's a complex sale that involves a lot of expertise in asset management, I can, and I don't know anything about tech or programming, I might be able to succeed at a very basic level in tech sales. So I went and started looking for interviews. I will say that every single job I looked at in tech sales paid less than what I was making by a, a good amount. So that was a wake up call for me. And I decided to, uh, take the chance and take a pay cut and move to a new firm. So I started out at a company called Usabilla, which is, was, had just been bought by SurveyMonk. They made customer experience, they make a customer experience software, the feedback button on the side of a website. Let's say you're booking something on united.com. You'll see the feedback button from Usabilla, SurveyMonkey now. I, and I chose them because it was simple. It was something I knew that I wasn't going to be looking at the, the code. I knew I can just describe what it does and go from there, which is exactly what I did. Although within a couple of months I left because I didn't like the makeup of the sales. I didn't like the way that the sales team was attacking the entire country instead of being divided into regions, which was what I was used to doing in asset management. I think that the approach for sales was a lot more segmented and a lot more thorough at Lord Abbott where I'd been in asset management than it was at SurveyMonkey. So that was a personal comparison I made and decided to move yet again to another software. Do you think that's a maturity thing in terms of the company or did you yes. also find out that it was this way in your next com tech company? No, it was definitely a maturity thing. First of all, the, the job was at, a, and the company was at a WeWork. Just to give you an idea of the maturity level, it had been, it had been founded about six or seven years earlier. It had maybe 120 employees, which is not bad. I mean, the company I'm at, this is the thing, the, the, the company I'm at now today in asset management, Alger, has about 180 employees, but it's okay. been around for 45 years. 
and it outsources a lot of its operations to operate very efficiently. Okay. Operations at, at Usabilla, now joining SurveyMonkey still, were not where they needed to be, and I'm sure that they're, they've gotten better since they were fully absorbed. But just the idea that they were telling us to call on the entire U.S. and just look right. up random clients and add them into our CRM, our, our customer relationship management system, our Salesforce system. I just throw, find a company if they could use our help and start talking to them was on the one hand, uh, an intellectual challenge, but on the other hand, it was too much of a challenge for not only me having just entered the field, but also having no support at all for finding clients was just a surprise in general. And yeah, that's another thing. It was wow, pure, I don't really cold, in asset management, everyone knows what's going on because you calling advisors who get called by other people like you all day. Right. And there's a camaraderie and an understanding and we're all licensed and legally registered and et cetera, et cetera. Right. In marketing, this was pure, like you said, cold calling. Finding the guy who, or girl who might be able to make the decision, might be the buyer or the manager of the buyer, and then go, and we don't even know if they're in a the process looking for the product. Right. We don't even know if they can use it. What a what a huge drastic change. Cause like you said, I imagine if when you're in the asset management game and you're everyone knows that this is how the business works and call, I guess you get a much warmer response than if you're just because I, I try to do sales for like two weeks. It was through a friend and people were literally hanging up on me. I think it was like life insurance. People mm -hmm. thought I was like a snake oil sales. Okay. And then you said you moved to, so in that company, you were selling like the SurveyMonkey product, something similar. Yeah, it was the whole suite, but it's a couple of products really, yeah. Okay. And then in the next tech company you moved to, what were you selling? So the next tech company was Infor, which is a large company. They were worth at least 3 billion then. Today, they're, they recently were bought for somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 13 billion. But yeah, I mean, it's a large company. They compete against Salesforce and Oracle and SAP in Germany, across, I mean, SAP is German, but they compete with them around the world. But yeah, Infor is a very large company. It was, it was actually founded in Germany and the US and was built by, by venture capital companies. I can't remember, I think it's Vista Capital Partners out in San Francisco. Venture capital, another part of finance, it's building companies, but, but private companies. Anyway, yeah, so it was built together and it had this weird format where there were literally 20 or 30 different products that were being over, the, over several decades merged together into one suite to compete against Oracle and SAP who were natively built out. But there were many things to sell and it was well segmented. Their sales organization knew what they were doing. They gave us lists of, of companies that we would attack and try to not right. attack, but right. go after and try to find areas where we might be able to help them. We had grids showing who they were using already because it's a, either a, it's either build or replace in, right. in, in that area, right? They have systems that they're using and we either replace them or, or we build new ones that are better or et cetera. Complex sales watch. And there were people who knew what to do and it was an interesting job, I'll say. Okay. Did you feel like you really had to understand the product and understand your competitors? Because you said, you looked at it and you're like, this isn't really my world. I studied, I know finance, I did a few degrees and I, I know, I just know you've always been interested in it. So that's really your niche. Yeah. But when you moved on and did you feel like it was, what am I getting myself into? Or did you eventually feel like, oh, I'm getting, I understand what Salesforce is. I understand what all these management systems are. Yeah. It's a great question because that, that goes to the essence of why I returned to asset management. I, this isn't true for everyone. I just want to, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I, when I was in, and now again, in asset management, I feel as though I'm a part of the industry, a part of the team. I know what's going on. 
And it's a very specific thing. Every company in the world is involved in, in finance and the asset management world. So right. actually, you could hear about an Infor. On, on, my, on my, my daily work, I could hear about competitors from Infor, SAP, and Oracle are public. Salesforce is public. But still, we're, we're, we have our own thing going on. We have our own metrics. We have our own you know, funds and ETFs and, and stocks. There's, it's one single world. And once you know it, you just continue to get better and better at it and you become more involved and it's part of your life. And, and by the way, there's a lot of good being done by investing, obviously. That's what every person can become a millionaire if they contribute a certain amount to their 401k, a certain amount to their Roth IRA, their brokerage account, and just let it grow. Yeah, so it, yeah, I felt an attachment to that and still do feel attachment to that. Whereas in tech sales, not being a programmer, not being a coder, and in the case of Infor, they really, they sell mostly to industrial companies, actually. They sell equipment that's called enterprise asset management, not the same, of course. But okay. it's the same name. Nowadays, they've changed to calling it enterprise performance management, which, for example, let's say you have an oil rig that you need to monitor the pressure and you want to make sure that the, uh, the metal is not corroding or you want to uh, basically all sorts of sensors need to work together to keep assets, in this case, industrial assets maintained. So that's one of the things that Infor does very well. And another thing it does is systems for supply chain monitoring, which is literally monitoring the entire supply chain of a company from Hong Kong to Long Beach in, in California, the shipping and bring it across the country and then warehouse management where you warehouse the the, the, the products or the, the different equipment they use it right. goes on and then they do all these really cool and interesting things however I, I will say that first of all because in sales in this case you're not visiting these sites every day that wouldn't that would be uneconomical even the top level salespeople only really meet with management of these companies a couple of times over the course of a year or two during the sales process. It, it leads to a relative disconnect between you and your clients because you're not on the same. So people who are able to thrust themselves into that and really understand it, are, that they'll succeed. And then the other people who will succeed are people who don't mind, who just want to have conversations with clients and don't mind not being directly involved in their client's industry, not even fully understanding it. There are people who don't mind that and they'll succeed too. They can have fun doing that. I, Absolutely, they can have fun doing that. So, so if I get you right, you felt like you can't, you don't, you don't really feel the product. And in asset management, you felt like you really live that world. Yeah, I, I, let me let me give a, a really easy example. I'm invested in my company's mutual funds. Okay. I'm now that we have an ETF. In fact, I'm invested in my brokerage account, and then in my 401k, I'm invested in our mutual funds, which are offered to us there. So I see their performance on a daily basis. It affects my life. Their success is my success, both on a professional level and on a financial level outside of my salary and commission. On top of that, the same, my company literally goes up and down in terms of its profits and its its margins and obviously its revenue, the way the market does. Last year was, I mean, I can't actually talk about my company's performance, but I think when the market went up last year, our assets under management went up. The more assets under management we get, assuming we don't hire double the amounts of people on my team, probably the more money towards me, most likely, right? To a certain extent, of course. I literally, we, we prosper with the markets. Obviously, we are active managers, so we're trying to beat and, and have, in many cases, beat the market. But at the same time, when the market is doing well and you feel it, and when your company is doing well, you're directly connected to that. And that is not necessarily the case in a lot of tech companies and their sales departments. These are people who are salespeople first and related to their clients' industries tangentially as opposed to directly. Okay. So you're selling assets in your industry and everybody knows what they're talking about. You're selling to people who know the market and you're selling them things about the market. And yeah, it's interesting. And it, it's, uh, it's more of a relationship built. Language. Yeah. yeah, mutual language. Like you said, you probably call and they're like, you know exactly what's, there's probably a similar conversation. Like you said, 10 
of the same conversations going on every day. And it's more of a relationship building business, won't you say? The people for years. Yeah. And that's actually another, I'm glad you mentioned that in tech typically, and this is not always the case, I guess I should break down the roles in, in tech a little bit because they are a little different, but in tech you have, you know, your business development person who's the one who either sources the lead as in finds the lead or, or is given the lead and opens up contact. It's not necessarily a cold contact, by the way, because the company may have other products they already have with you, right? A company like Infor, Salesforce, or Microsoft definitely already, Microsoft undoubtedly has at least one product with every single company right. on earth that they're using, either in a direct relationship where someone called them and they did it, or maybe they did it online. But at the higher levels, their relationships go on. But the business development person is the one reaching out for the first time to get a new product typically. Then you have a customer success manager who manages that relationship. It keeps, tries to upsell or cross sell or just maintain the relationship for that product. And then you have the, uh, there are all sorts of names for it, but the people above that who manage the direct sale and manage the relationship with that individual company. And that being said, even though they're doing that, at the end of the day, the people change in that company over the years, the roles change, the products change, things just are not the same. Whereas in asset management, you're working with advisors who typically have a 40 to 50 year career. One of the great things about advisors is that the longer they're, they're in the business, the more money they manage. And so if you grow a relationship with an advisor over 20 or 30 years, you'll be able to, it's likely that if you stay in your role working with them in that territory that you're covering that region of the country, you'll be able to build a great relationship. And towards the end, it's a compound interest. It can get, you can get really successful towards the end. But regardless, these, they, they, they don't change. So if you don't move from area to area, they won't. And even if you do, you, you still have that common language we talked about. Okay. So my question here in terms of tech sales, because I get what you don't like about it. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. It feels like it's finally saying it about the financial, the financial industry or asset management, those products, it's more of a same language, closed people know. But what did you see in, in tech sales that you saw were things that you could point out that were good or what should someone yeah. know when they go into it? Sure. I, the first thing and the thing that I saw, I, I felt this while working in asset management was I was watching NASDAQ or the tech-focused exchange grow exponentially, significantly outperforming every other industry. GE had been the world's most valuable company in, in 2000. And then Exxon Mobil took over. And then after that, it's been the FANG stocks, uh, FANG companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google. They've been the last five most valuable companies. Now Tesla's up there too. It markets itself as, as tech, even though it's probably not really tech. It's more of a car company with a tech company. Right. These are the most, most valuable companies today and the most successful ones. Uh, and that's what I saw. I saw the world being revolutionized by this incredible technology transformation. And I wanted to be a part of it. One reason why I joined both Usabilla and Infor was that both were, when I interviewed with them, private, not yet public. I, I, I didn't expect to get money necessarily. Uh, I think I got a small amount from SurveyMonkey when, uh, from, yeah, when SurveyMonkey bought Usabilla. That didn't stay with me because I left before a year or two, but there was money we made there, but it wasn't about the money. It was about the transformative experience of a company becoming public and the transformative experience that it has for its clients when it changes their worlds. And that is, that remains true today. And that's only going to accelerate in the future. You so can you felt see dynamic. Sorry. So you felt it's very dynamic. Yes. Yes. And I felt that I wanted to be a part. And this is where a lot of people join. I think even if they can't program or, or build robotics, they can still change the world one way or another. I'm not saying change the world in the hippie sort of a way, 
I'm saying advance <laughs> new technology and be a part of it. Imagine selling for technology that, that changes an entire industry. Think of anything in the internet or uh, any, anything you're selling that's literally, for example, moving the whole theme for Infor, Salesforce, and Oracle, and as well as Microsoft with Azure, um, and Amazon with AWS, with Amazon Web Services. The theme is bringing everyone onto the cloud. And that's transforming businesses every single day. It makes right. them operate more smooth. And of course, it helps the economy and, and reduces you know, the environmental impact is less as well, by the way. And there's so many ways to think about it. It's transformative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have, the, you have the engineers that built it, but you have an entire, there's so much more infrastructure to having a technology take over the market. You have the salespeople that introduce it and even convince the people to implement it. So yeah. it's, it's funny because me and you both served in the army. So it's kind of like that because... You have the combat soldiers. That's the army in a lot of people's minds, the engineers. But you need to have this. I think combat soldiers aren't even, what? They're not even 10% of the, they don't even make up 10% of the army. And so it's a pretty cool. And implementing, they're just using the tools that have been created, uh, the missiles and, and the, the rifles and, and all the incredible laser guided technology that's been created somewhere else. It's, it's one big operation. That's exactly how uh, tech companies change the world. They change every single industry. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good per perspective on it. It's really interesting that you're going from asset management to tech, but it's also good to know for people that are interested in tech to say, oh, maybe my personality is better suited for like asset management or finance or something like that. Cause that's still, I'm sure a growing industry and not everyone needs to be in tech. And this is, this is very impactful business. Um, in its own way, it's its own, its own culture. And obviously most people are making the retirement from at investing in public markets. And there are venture capitalists that are making a lot of money from the private companies, but it's good to know for someone who's finishing high school or getting into college and is thinking, Hey, coding's not for me, or I don't really want to be in this crazy cold calling environment. And not everywhere is like that. I'm sure like it really depends on the company yeah. and people and just culture of each company. But in general, asset management is, is a really interesting field that I think most people like wouldn't think about immediately when they're thinking about careers. Because also the recruiting happens a lot in colleges for the consulting firms and the investment banking. So how do people usually get recruited to asset management? Are they coming to the universities? Are they specific universities? Or are you just need the certifications, a general related degree, and you can start applying and they hire from there? Yeah, you know, this might sound crazy, but there's no uniform way that they recruit in asset management. It's a very funny thing. Some companies have started recruiting. Some say we don't need to, people are going to apply and it's true. It ends up being almost a system where most people know somebody else in it or heard of it some way. Like I was one of the only people in my class of 12 people that joined Lord Abbott in 2017. I was one of two people who had not heard about it from either a friend or a family member. And that can lead to problems with diversity, but they just don't seem to recruit in the same way. Part of it is because their margins are not as high as tech companies. So, I mean, their margins can be good, but they're probably not as great as some tech companies. So they want to, and they're not going to spend money on that when they know they'll get recruits anyway, people coming in. Right. Uh, another thing is that some, some firms hire out of the gate and train you. And then other firms say, we're just going to take people who are two, two or three years in the industry and above. So the larger firms have programs. You'll see even advertising from Fidelity um, or BlackRock some places, I think, and I'm sure in college campuses as well. But some firms are small enough that they don't want to do that. And they, at the same time, they will rely on experienced people coming in a couple of years. They basically let other companies train 
you and then you come in with your licenses already ready to go. I have one final question for you. So a lot of the people that we speak to here or, you know, that, that have a question, would you say someone who maybe doesn't have a degree or doesn't have a degree in the field, how can they get into asset management or tech sales? How can you, you know, if you do want to go there, you don't know someone that will bring you in, how can you go there? Because I'll tell you the, some of the most common examples that we look at when we, when we built this is that we're looking, okay, what if I'm someone who already has a degree and I didn't find it particularly useful and I'm not going to do a second degree, like a master's or a second bachelor's, or what if I'm someone who never got a degree and now I'm at a point in life where going back to school is just not realistic. Can, can someone like that go and get a tech sales? I assume asset management is less likely, even though you said that there isn't a uniform way, but would they be able to get into one of these fields? I'll start with tech sales. The answer is yes, undoubtedly. So many companies are hiring tech sales. The bar for getting into a tech sales job is just not that high. But at the same time, they, on average for entry-level jobs, I know that they pay lower. Across the board, even at a Google or an Oracle, they're just not going to, I don't know about Google, but mostly it depends on which department. But right. for the most part, they're just not going to pay quite as much because, first of all, there is no license requirement. And second of all, a lot of people are looking at these companies, even in sales. And, and third of all, the skills to sell them are not the same. So they're not uniform anywhere because no two companies in tech, well, actually, of course, there are two or three companies that do everything. But at one or two things, uh, most companies have different products, right? You can go from a company that does uh, net, you know, browsers to one that does cloud computing to one that does robotics. And they all similar have similar needs for salespeople, but they can't expect everyone to have an idea of how to sell this stuff or what it is even. So they'll train you. And for that reason, I think that there's generally an easier route into tech sales. At the same time, it's like a pyramid where very quickly the roles become very challenging and you need to have great relationships in tech too and a great understanding of the industry. And it's very fast moving in tech too. It's interesting because there are definitely a lot of roles down here at the bottom of the pyramid in tech sales. And then as you becomes different, which is fine. That's, that is the truth in all companies. That being said, they will, they'll move you to other parts of the company as well. In tech, they'll, it'll, it's very easy to move into operations, into customer success and management. It's not just pure sales, um, but you, you can find a way into most tech companies doing that. And then on the other hand, in asset management, you can find a way, but you do need to reflect a certain, and well, you can't come in there with dyed hair and a t-shirt. So the first thing is you have to look, there's a difference in the interviews. That's good news and bad news. For someone like me, it was a challenge in tech sales pretending to be a hipster, but I'm, so I'm just fine in asset management. Most of the people there are very, very similar to me in, in certain regards, although not at all the same. They all love sports. Uh, I don't, but no, there are <laughs> some general similarities. Whereas in, in tech, they do welcome more different types of people. I believe, I believe they're more welcoming in general, but part of that can be a cultural thing. Some companies are more like them, others are less. There's just so many tech companies. Sure. Interesting. You had, usually it's like the opposite. It's harder to fit in the finance roles I hear, but, uh, <laughs> but I won't deny that there are yeah, certain requirements. You're, you're just not, some people just might not be okay with that in finance. Yeah. I won't deny that. a special guy though. I have to say, I know for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end off. And I think this was a good overview of wealth management. Um, or asset management, a, the field in general, and like the comparison, a sales job at an asset management firm versus a sales job at a tech firm, which is like good for people to know. Cause even if you're interested in sales, you may want to think about asset management. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on and uh,
I think I learned a bunch from this episode and I think uh, our audience will find this pretty valuable. Is there anything, last words that you want to tell people or anywhere you would want people to reach out to you? First of all, thank you for having me here. Uh, it was great. And one thing that any person in, in any industry discovers is that when you talk about what you do, it teaches you about what you do because you hear about it from other people's perspectives. And sometimes you forget that for a while. So I mean, it's, it's always enlightening for me to talk about things that I do and don't like about what I do and have done in the past. Um, in terms of anybody who wants help getting into tech sales, there are plenty of resources out there, I'm sure. You can always reach out to me and asset management, certainly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist of, of asset management industry and how it changes people's lives. The wealth management industry you mentioned is related to that, of course, and I can talk about that too. If anyone wants reach out to me on LinkedIn. My name is Nathan Kennan and I'm right up there. And I guess that would be all I have to say. I, I, one thing I would comment on is that I've worked at four companies and every single company is different. At the end of the day, as much as jobs in the industry can be the same, nobody can prepare you for what you're going to meet at a different company than I, that I haven't worked at. I, I, I can't. Every single job can be similar in its requirements, but that's the experience with the people you work with will still be key. And that'll be probably what makes or breaks your success at a company. It's how you work with your coworkers, I think. Yeah, amazing. All right, thank you. And we'll see you guys all on the next episode.